stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Well, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Growing up in the 70s, Saturday mornings meant one thing. Cartoons. It's a huge, big Bugs Bunny fan from way back. And I'd seen every episode of Scooby-Doo. But, you know, I mean, I like the newer stuff. Hong Kong Fooey, Grape Ape, Fat Albert, Harlem Globetrotters, Popcorn Machine. But my favorite show was... Super Friends. It's a kind of kid-friendly version of the League of Justice. I liked it not only because it featured superheroes like, you know, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Batman and Robin, but because it had them all fighting together. Team. And I wasn't, it wasn't because I was a huge cheerleader for teamwork, which I guess I was, but because I thought that with all of them together, joining forces. I mean, nobody could beat them, right? The idea of an undefeatable force helped make sense of, if not a chaotic world, then at least a threatening one. I know a lot of people think that Hollywood's obsession with superheroes is nuts, but I've always been kind of fascinated by them. I find the idea of a power so invincible that no force can stand against it compelling. I mean, it makes sense when you stop and think about it, doesn't it? When the world feels like it's spinning out of control, the thought that someone or something might show up to put things back in order, it's attractive. 
magical thinking, wish fulfillment, and other coping mechanisms allow people to exert a little control over a complicated and often dangerous world. So we shouldn't be too quick to judge. I mean, humans have always discounted what they see as other people's superstitions, not our own. Spending money on a lottery ticket is reasonable, but rain dances? Now that's where we draw the line. But these coping me mechanisms are, are crucial release valves. I mean, we need whatever kind of m emotional help we can get in facing a scary and unpredictable universe, which is why superheroes make so much sense, right? So it should come as no surprise then that Superman made his debut in a DC comic book in 1938. April that year. Now think about what was going on in the world at this time. In March of that year, just before Superman's first appearance, Nazi Germany annexed Austria, absorbing it as a German territory. Tensions with European neighbor Czechoslovakia intensified, raising worldwide concerns about the threat of a war in Europe at a time when the world was still traumatized by the first grisly European war, World War I. In 1938, Germany also introduced policies putting flesh on the bones of anti-Semitism. They began deporting Jews to Poland, and then in October, they canceled all Jewish passports. And on November 9th, 1938, roving bands of brown-shirted goons and the public, emboldened by them, incited Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, busting the windows of Jewish businesses and beating anyone they suspected of being Jewish. And three days later, on the 12th, all Jewish businesses were closed by government decree. There's a lot going on in the world, right? But this sounds like a job for Superman. So we shouldn't be surprised that Superman appeared on the scene at that time. It's also important to note that Batman appeared in 1939 followed by Captain Marvel in 1940 and Captain America in 1941. And thus was launched what is widely called the Golden Age of Comic Books, which lasted until 1950. Throughout the tumult of World War II with its shared loss of life and war, the discovery of the Nazi death camps, the advent of the atomic bomb, the aftermath of a Europe turned into rubble, See, when things are bleakest, modern Americans aren't above little magical thinking ourselves, are we? Right out of seminary, I, I had a, a great job. A minister at one of the downtown churches in a small town in Appalachia. And things seemed to be going pretty well. People were great. They took care of us, made us part of their families. But in the summer of that year, Disciples General Assembly met in St. Louis. The main item on the agenda was the election of a new general minister and president. 
Now, the candidate on the ballot that year was replacing the candidate who'd gone down in flames two years prior, losing a tight and some thought crooked election in Tulsa at the General Assembly. The defeated candidate was my professor and friend, Dr. Michael Kinneman. And his candidacy unfolded while I was at Lexington Theological Seminary. He was our academic dean. Now, Dr. Kinneman remains to this day one of my all-time favorite professors, one of my all-time favorite people. He was unfailingly kind and thoughtful to me, and he was a Cubs fan, so you know, <clears throat> he was one of God's favorite people too. But Michael's nomination quickly drew fire when it came to, the, came to light that he and his wife were longtime supporters of GLAAD, gay, lesbian, and affirming disciples. His support for the LGBTQ community almost 30 years ago became a flashpoint for the denomination. Now, in the lead-up to the vote in Tulsa, Michael traveled all across the country in the U.S. meeting with churches and leaders who wanted to grill him on his supposed heresy and there was this counter-presence among the disciples called Disciples Renewal, which was kind of the Stone Campbell version of QAnon, and threatened to split the denomination over the homosexual question, as it was called at the time. Now, I told, all, I told you all of that to tell you this. Some of the families in my new congregation had been among those who found Dr. Kinneman's candidacy terrifying. They were afraid of what he represented, at least in their minds. So two years later, months after I'd started, these families got pretty wound up again in the lead-up to the new vote that summer. And because they knew that I was a friend and former student of the guy they feared was going, at one, uh, going to at one time make the disciples the gay church, their anxiety found a focus in me. Now, the main family who had me in their sights started sort of ramping up the pressure, spreading rumors that I was soft on the homosexual question and that uh, I voted for Dick Ham, which was Dr. Kinneman's replacement, whom they assumed was just as liberal as Michael had been. They wondered aloud whether or not I even believed the Bible. Now, I felt sure I was about to lose my job which made me super anxious because I figured if I got fired after only nine months as a minister, I might not ever find another job. Now, the wealthiest man in the congregation, who's a coal mine owner, who along with his wife had been extraordinarily kind to Susan and me, told me when I first arrived that he wanted me to succeed, that they were expecting great things. So if I had any problems, he wanted me to know that he was there to help in any way he could. Terrified of losing my job and not knowing what else to do, I called him and asked if I could come to see him. And he said, well, of course. When I arrived, he and I went into his study, and he said, preacher, sit down and tell me what's got you so upset. And so I told him what was happening. And he didn't say anything while I spoke, and afterward, he nodded 
And he said, I'm not going to ask you what you believe. Frankly, you're trained in this stuff, and you know more about it than I do. And plus, I really don't care. But here's what I'm going to do. Do the elders know what you believe about this stuff? And I said, no, nobody ever asked me. <laughs> All right, then. I want you to write a letter to the elders. And I want you to be honest about whatever it is you believe. And I'll support you. Okay, I said, somewhat relieved, but still uh, unsure. And then he said, and here's what I'm going to do. Do you have any vacation time left? I said, well, I'm, I'm supposed to go to my 10-year high school reunion in a couple weeks. And he said, will you be gone over the weekend? And I said, yeah, I got somebody who's going to preach for me. He said, well, that's all I need to know. I'll take care of it. And that was it. Now, I didn't know what he meant by that, but 10 minutes after we pulled into our driveway upon returning home from the reunion, a carload of some of the older women in the church pulled in. They knocked on the door, which I thought was kind of strange, uh, showing up unannounced, but, you know, small-town life was a bit more relaxed about that sort of thing at the time anyway. But one of the women couldn't wait to talk. She said, did you hear what happened in church this morning? I said, no, we just, I mean, we just pulled in. This she said, I've never seen anything like it in my life. He said, James, the, the, the coal mine owner, walked down front during the invitation hymn. And nobody knew what was going on because, I mean, he's not the type really who dedicates his, rededicates his life, you know. Anyway, after the music stopped, he waved the preacher away. And he turned to the congregation and he said, it's come to my attention that some people are giving our young preacher a hard time, and I want it to stop today. Pretty soon, a bunch of people joined him down front, and they just stood there next to him while he talked. Now, of course, my eyes were bugging out at this point. And she said, but that's not all. After church, James took your biggest critic down to the basement and, he, and they sat and just talked, the two of them, in the Sunday school room. And Mildred's nosy, so after we went out to eat, we stopped back by the church, you know, just to check. Two hours later, they were still down there. And then the third woman held something out to me, a gift unlike any I've ever received. She pressed a cassette tape into my hand and she said, Here's the recording of the service, if you don't believe us. Now, when I tell other ministers that story, I often see looks of awe and jealousy. Because even ministers want superheroes. Even people who have it together, at least in everybody else's mind, Not above it. And once we understand this human desire to be rescued, we can finally see the emotional impact of Jesus' death sentence on our, in our text for today. 
a text that is admittedly a strange one as we sit on the threshold of the Advent and Christmas season. I mean, seriously, who thought it was a good idea to have Jesus on the cross so close to Thanksgiving? But today is Reign of Christ Sunday. We used to call it Christ the King Sunday. It's the final Sunday in the Christian year, the one before we flip the Christian calendar to Advent, a new year, next Sunday. Reign of Christ Sunday is meant to remind us of the cosmic nature of Jesus' work in announcing the inbreaking of God's new realm of peace and justice. And so here we are today, staring up at Jesus on the cross between two criminals needing themselves a little bit of help. Now these criminals, it should be noted, aren't common thieves up on ordinary burglary charges. In Greek, they're identified as leste. Leste are what some sociologists of religion call social bandits, which is a particular class of criminal for whom crucifixion was aimed. Uh, we, we, we might better uh, think of them as political revolutionaries. See, crucifixion in the Roman Empire was reserved for two classes of people, the enslaved and leste. As James Cone famously pointed out, the cross was Rome's version of what Americans came to call the lynching tree, a form of public humiliation so gruesome its purpose was to make sure that certain kinds of people stayed in their place. Otherwise, the state was more than happy to make an example out of them. Which means, of course, that Jesus was crucified not because he annoyed the Jewish religious leaders, as has been popularly taught for years, but because Caesar's goons were afraid he would try to lead a revolt to try to take over Jerusalem. And they wanted to nip that in the bud while communicating to the hoi polloi that making political noise can land you in a lot of hot water. And this, in a nutshell, is why everybody was so baffled and upset with Jesus. I mean, everybody, his followers, the general population, the two criminals whose company he was now keeping, all expecting something different from them, even the Roman authorities. They wanted or expected a Messiah, which was as much a political term as a religious one. You see, everyone, including the Romans, thought Jesus was going to incite a rebellion, raise up a mob to overthrow the government. The people wanted Superman, not some humiliated peasant. And they were confounded to see him on the cross. Life for 95% of the people living in first century Palestine was, as Thomas Hobbes once uh, said, nasty, brutish, and short. The Pax Romana had more to do with putting down armed threats to their trade routes than establishing some ancient Near Eastern Shangri-La. Ordinary people were tired of seeing their children starve and their money stolen the world was a pretty grim place for them. Now, you know, call it magical thinking if you want. Lay it off on wish fulfillment if you must. The people who followed Jesus were looking for someone or something to save them. They wanted Superman. 
Somebody as the first criminal, as the guards, the centurions at the cross, all pointed out who could save himself. And thereby save everybody else. Come on, Jesus, take off your Clark Kent glasses, get down off the cross and save us. Now what does Jesus do? He stretches out his arms, but instead of using them to fly, the Romans used them to fasten him to a tree. As has been typically understood in Protestant Christianity, the cross is a sort of a bridge over this chasm of separation from God. The, the, the cross is kind of a prop in this great morality play that God has sketched out. Now, in this view, the cross isn't the point of Jesus' life and ministry. It's a, it's a mistake. It's a, it's a horrible tragedy. It's a short-term inconvenience through which Jesus must pass before moving on to the more difficult and important work of resurrection. Now, read this way, the cross is just merely it's kind of a tool. But, but I'd like to suggest to you that the cross is the point of Jesus' life and ministry. The cross is exactly the point at which Jesus most clearly reveals what God's up to in creating a new world. And it's not because God needs some sort of blood sacrifice to appease God's anger. As Terry Eagleton has said, a God who loves his creatures so dearly that he's prepared to be done to death by them clearly requires no appeasing. Instead, the cross is the shape of the life that Jesus calls us to lead. See, that's why Jesus, properly understood, makes so little sense in our world. It's, it's, it's why popular religion has tried so hard to domesticate him, to, to, to make him everybody's pal, make him the, the, the political patron of those who are already in power. Because the real Jesus is headed in a much more dangerous direction. As Robert Capon noted, the human race is, was, and probably always will be deeply unwilling to accept a human messiah. We don't want to be saved in our humanity. We want to be fished out of it. We crucified Jesus not because he was God, but because he blasphemed. He claimed to be God and then failed to come up to our standards for assessing the claim. It's not that we weren't looking for the Messiah. It's just that he wasn't what we were looking for. Our kind of Messiah would come down from a cross. He'd carry a folding phone book booth in his back pocket. He wouldn't do a stupid thing like rising from the dead. He, wouldn't do a, he would do a smart thing like not dying in the first place. See, the world doesn't want a God willing to be done to death, but a God who will hop down off the cross, kick some bad guys around, and restore peace, justice, in the American way. Now, of course, for those of us who aren't nearly as competent as our resumes might suggest, that's actually the good news. See, God's not sitting around fretting and saying, oh, this sounds like a job for Superman. No, God, God's relying on us. 
In all of our brokenness, with all of our magical thinking and our longing for a superhero to save us, God is counting on us to help save the world. So take heart. Help is on the way. It's just that Superman's not enough for this one. God thinks the world needs you. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.